I'm going to try to be as Jewish as I could be, but the best of my understanding, every day of my life, then you embrace every day of your life to be as Jewish as you could be with the best of your understanding, however that is. And if you're in relationship with people who aren't in that space, it doesn't change the space that you're in. You're still going to be as Jewish as you could be to the best of your understanding every single day of your life with other Jews. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. In mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. In this episode of the Hope to Recharge podcast, we welcome Aliza Bulow, international Torah educator and mentor, founder and director of CORE. This episode contains controversial, non-traditional conversation about finding belonging and braiding love, respect, and trust together in our intimate relationships with family members and with friends that matter most to us, even when we have completely opposite opinions of faith and ways of living with our faith. This conversation will contain Jewish and Orthodox terminology. This episode was recorded specifically for the Jewish community, even though all humans can benefit from this incredibly deep conversation. Despite its significant length, we highly recommend you stay till the end, where you'll find extreme gold nuggets that bring the entire episode together and will leave you inspired and perhaps even motivated to think differently than you have until now. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and would love to hear your thoughts. And now, now, your host for the Hope to Recharge podcast, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. I have a returning guest that became my mentor, my literally my mentor, my friend. If you didn't hear Aliza Bulow's first and second episode on our podcast, it is episode 125, 126, where we discuss Aliza's loss of her dear son, Donnie, and how she inspires the world through her growth, her understanding of life and death, mental illness. Her son, Donnie, died at what age was it? 20? 19. 19. Death by suicide. And we go deep dive into what is it like to know his whole life that he's not going to continue living and how he talks to Aliza, his mother, about planning his death. It's a very raw, real, important episode. It's one of the most shared episodes, by the way, Aliza. It just shows how people want to understand. They want really to understand suicide. They want to understand mental illness and how to live beyond it and not how to go down with it. So I think you inspired so many of us and thank you. Aliza is the head of coretorah.org. Tell us a little bit about Coretorah. Well, core really is about strengthening the core of the Jewish people, which is the, the, right now, I would say that's the observant Jewish woman. I, I was in Kira for a long time in outreach, trying to help other Jews create a connection with Hashem, with the Torah. And I really saw through 30 years of work in that field, and then moving into the realm of helping other Rebbitsons, I became a, a coach for Rebbitsons, Rebbitson, really. For 11 years, I worked for an organization and was salaried to travel and support and develop Rebbitsons in the field all, all over North America. So I had a lot of travel, a lot of experience in a lot of different communities, outreach communities and from, from birth communities, observant from birth. And, um, and I got to see through the eyes of many different women into their lives, their marriages, their parenting, their parents, their siblings. And through that, I came to realize, oh my gosh, the religious observant world right now needs a lot of attention. And, and that's what I want to strengthen now. So I've turned my energy to strengthening the core of the Jewish people. I really feel like if we could create communities that are warm and inspiring, 
warm enough that everyone born into them wants to stay and inspiring enough that everyone else wants to join, we wouldn't need all these outreach programs. We would be the outreach people just because we'd be shining so brightly in the world that people would look at us and say, wow, whatever you're on, I want a piece of that. So I'm working on that, helping people really feel like whatever I'm on, I love it. And for other people to say, wow, whatever you're on, I want some of that. So that's what CORE does in many different ways. It connects to our conversation before we started. We had a passionate conversation <laughs> and, and we were talking about the showing the shiny part and really living the shiny part and how it's we're missing it. We have three different major programs. One is creating associations among women who practice a certain field within the Jewish world and bringing them together, whether they're Kala teachers or Hebra Kadisha or community Rebbitzins or Torah teachers or doulas or all kinds of different areas of Jewish practice that women are engaged in. So we create communities of practice out of them and give them professional development. So there's a peer network and professional development or we also have a two and a half year training program for, um, for spiritual caregivers, for women who are engaged with our communities. Some are Rebbitsons and some are very strong lay leaders that we're bringing forward to create more access points for spiritual guidance within our community for women. And then the third branch is creating micro communities, core circles, micro communities of five to 10 women who get together offline in real life to develop real strong relationships with each other, with Hashem and with the Torah. And I feel like that's the addition that I've made here with CORE is connecting Jews with Hashem and the Torah, but with each other. Mm. We really need the with each other pathways. And especially now through Corona, if we needed this before, which we did, and this was begun before Corona, but how much more so now we really need some guidance, structure, framework, ability to create and deepen relationships with each other to really, um, yeah, bring us to that place where the inner shine has a place to stick. It can only stick inside when you have real relationships with people that are strong and enduring. Mm. So we're working on helping people with that too. So Aliza, a few months ago, you were in New York and I got the privilege of meeting you and you were telling me that you were about to meet the first group of women that graduated the three, was it three years? It's the two and a half year program. Yeah. yeah the program. And like you saw the leadership, eva like going from raw to growing, connecting into real leaders. And you took this idea and you said, I had this idea. I didn't know how I'm going to do it. And one of the things that you said, and then we're going to go into this topic was your husband's support in this, which was for me, I think one of the most beautiful things that you were saying that you had this dream, no financing behind it, no, no great rich. Jews that said, here, go, Aliza, here's a million dollars, create your dream. You did it on your own time, on your own effort. You devoted hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours to yeah. creating this and to dare greatly, like Brene Brown talks about dare greatly going into a very controversial area, bringing a lot of different women into leadership and to say, okay, we're going to do this a little bit different. I'm going to create something that is not there yet and see how it's going to happen. And the thing that inspired me the most, one of the things that inspired me the most was that you told me that your husband is not even Orthodox. And I'm like, wow. And he is supporting your dream. And he's saying we're together in this and not a, say, oh, another Jewish project. And why are we doing this after he rejected Orthodoxy through pain to support someone? I think there's no greater love than that.
Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others essential for healing if you want to work one-on-one with me on these topics in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of click the link below in the show notes it's a custom made program for you one-on-one with me we will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being click the link below looking forward to working with you it really is a deep love. And I would venture to say it's also a deep love for the Jewish people that he has. And it's from the love and the pain as he looks at the Jewish people and says, oh my gosh, like on the one hand, I love that. And the other hand, I'm so frustrated by that. And she loves it. And I love her. So I'm going to support her. I'll stand by her as she tries to make it into a place where everyone fits. So I do want to make it into a place where we all have a space, where we're all held and cherished and loved. It doesn't mean we have to all agree on politics. We don't have to all agree on religion. We don't have to all agree on who runs the world even, but that we should all agree that we're part of one group together that is something special on this planet and has something special to bring. That's what I'm working on. It's just helping the Jews feel connected with each other. I would like them to all feel connected with Hashem and with his Torah too, and to create that space in which we have more breadth of care and shine to share with each other. And then through that, with the rest of humanity, because we're really, as Jews, we're really here to elevate all of humanity. It's not just about us. It has to be about us first so that we become active in this process. But then the goal is elevation of all humanity. That's what we're here for. So I'm working on that. Through the Jewish people, elevation of all humanity. We really want to make Hashem beloved by everyone. I have that vision of the end of Elena. In that day, at that time, Hashem's name is going to be one. And everyone's going to have that clarity together. I'm working on that clarity on the inside of the Jews first. (laughs) And you're working with women specifically. I'm specifically working with women. Turns out a lot of women are related to men, whether they've given birth to them or they're married to one, or maybe they're even descended from Mm. one. Very often a woman is descended from a man too. So even working with women, it means I'm working with men too, through the women. um, That's beautiful. So I want to give a little bit of a background for whoever doesn't know. Aliza converted to Judaism when she was 16, but when she was 14, she started observing religion, orthodoxy. Her conversion was at 16. Then she went to Israel. She did a bit of IDF in order to be more with the program. It's a whole other story. But then she met her husband in Israel that was a Jewish observant Orthodox guy. And as she says, I thought we were on the same level in our religion, in our pursuit to God and being in the Orthodox world. And then we started having our kids and family. They moved back to America. Aliza's husband is a lawyer and Aliza so passionate about the Jewish Orthodox world. Aliza is extremely brilliant and very knowledgeable. Like really don't even try to one up her when with her knowledge, because there's a tremendous amount of knowledge. And I think that is one of the gifts that Aliza has. She has the emet, the truth. She has the knowledge and she has the humble part of of we're all in this 
in a journey in life. And one of the reasons why I asked Eliza to join us today was to talk about belonging. How can you find belonging in yourself in order to be a belonging from, for others when we are different? Such a challenge. Now, let me just throw in there that before the IDF, I did spend two years in a seminary, um, a pretty strong one for learning. And the, my first moment there was a moment of not belonging. Mm. It was challenging. I knew flying to Israel at 16 by myself, flying over the pole. I got on the plane in Portland, flew to Seattle, over the North Pole, landed in London, and then to Tel Aviv. Mm. I'm full of self-confidence getting on the airplane, going by myself to a foreign country where I barely speak the language at age 16, as my mother yells down the jetway, you can always come back. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, I never will. <laughs> <laughs> but I settle into my seat and then all of a sudden I'm a little nervous like I'm 16 I'm younger than everybody in the program I'm going to plus I converted and nobody knows that and if they do will they think that I'm really Jewish or not like I know my parents are just biding their time waiting for this phase to pass teenagers go through phases and I knew I was in permanently and yet I'm a teenager and then I was worried about the flight will we crash will we land over the North Pole who lives in the North Pole it's only Santa Claus what will happen if I crash and I'm the only survivor and then I have to knock on Santa's door and ask him if he has kosher food and the whole thing is going through my hysterical <laughs> by the way Aliza that is hysterical well in the end we landed safely in Tel Aviv <laughs> and you didn't meet Santa did not meet Santa I got off the airplane in those days when you got off the airplane you got off right into the air of Israel. You didn't get into a terminal. Right. You stepped off the plane, you went down the steps, but mm -hmm. you were immediately enveloped by the smell of the orange groves that surrounded the airport. It was heavy, thick, sweet, delicious smell. And I knew I was home and I was <sighs> never going back. I knew I had to find a Sheirut driver. I did not speak much Hebrew, but I knew Sheirut. I knew not to say Sheirutim, just Sheirut, <laughs> that there's no plural for that. And I found a driver and I knew what I should pay and the, the negotiate or not and how does that work. Finally, I make my way to where I'm supposed to stay and it's midnight when I'm dropped off and I, there's nobody there to greet me and I'm coming to a dorm and, and all the lights are off and I'm like, okay, fine. I'm a little nervous here. Maybe I'll just sleep under the steps tonight and I'll wait till the office opens in the morning. But somebody came down the stairs just at that moment and, and I went up to uh, somebody, they found me a room and there I am. And immediately people started asking questions. Oh, what's your name? Where are you from? Just like Jews do. So you get to say something like Matana Pupko, the Pupko family, Matana, whatever it is. And everybody's, oh, Pupko, are those the Pupkos from wherever? Oh yeah, my grandfather learned with your grandfather. and we Jewish geography. Summer camp together. Okay, fine. So I say Elisa Beach from Portland, Oregon. Nobody says, do you know the beaches from? And nobody says, oh, Portland, do you know the... No, this is not a conversation at all. It definitely took some time to figure out my level of comfort in that group. And I think I probably have struggled with it in many different ways throughout the decades that I've been Jewish and in Jewish leadership, because I have, and I've met with many people who have chosen to be Jewish and most of them struggle to feel a sense of belonging. Forever, 20, 30, 40 years. Slightly outside. I feel like if you think about mainstream Judaism as like a flow going across wherever you, if you can see a screen going across, a lot of people who chose in are like looking up, like looking into the window of the candy shop. Like they've joined, they're in the bottom of the stream and they're looking in and they're part of it, but they, it's hard to feel like you're fully in. Your kids take you further in 
your grandkids take you further in. It does take a few generations to fully integrate that way because the kids are kids of converts too. Like they might do weird things, go camping or own a pet or something Mm. like that because you come from a different background. And not only that, but they have grandparents or cousins that are weird in the from world. So it just takes a couple generations before there's from cousins and from grandparents and regular family traditions. Looking to reduce your anxiety and stress, relax your muscles, or get a better night's sleep? Check out Maxifies.com, 100% legal hemp, where you can find doctor-formulated, lab-certified, high-quality CBD oils, tinctures, and other items, cultivated, grown, harvested, and packaged in the United States, and available in different sizes and strength formulas. Check out Maxifies.com, that's M-A-X-I-F-Y-Z.com, and use coupon code HOPE to get 10% off your order plus free shipping. That's Maxifies.com heard a talk by Feggy Torsky once and I was a relatively young mother and she talked about building family memories. So I thought, yes, that's what I have to do. I need to build Jewish memories for my own children. So one of the places I chose to build memory was koshering the sinks for Pesach. You know, koshering the sinks is a big steamy affair, or at least the way Mm -hmm. I did it was. And that's like the last thing you do before you flip your kitchen. Everything's clean. And then you boil up pots of water and it's all steamy and you splash it all over the place and then done. Then you cover your counters and it's Pesach dick. So I would have my kids watch. I would call them into the kitchen and have them stand on the side for this dangerous thing. They're little kids, right? Splash it all over and they get to see this is it. Pesach is coming. And every year I did that. And finally, when we moved to Denver and my kids are a little bit older and my teenage girls were helping and it was late at night and the kitchen wasn't quite ready. The pots were boiling, but I wasn't ready to kosher yet. It's one o'clock in the morning and one of the teenage girls falls away. It's time for her to go to sleep. And now it's 1.30, 2 o'clock and the the other two go to sleep. And finally at 2.30, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. But there's nobody here. Mm -hmm. But the pots are ready. The sinks are ready. I'm just going to kosher and then go to bed. And then in the morning, we'll cover. So in the morning, when the girls woke up, they looked at me Yes, they're like, you koshered the sinks without us? I thought, oh my gosh, I did. I created like a Jewish memory that's valuable to them. And they missed it. And I I should have done it without them. Like they scared. Look how it came full circle to tell you you did it. Specifically with that question. Yeah. Wow. It was so special to know like I achieved this. Like there's Jewish memories that they value that are part of their childhood that are Mm. growing into their adulthood and they care. How powerful. So I thought about my own self in terms of where do I belong in this dream? Do I feel like I'm still looking up and in and not quite there? I don't, but excuse me, I feel like I am still on the outside. Till today, where I'm on the outside looking in instead of on the bottom of the stream looking in. Meaning I, the way that I fit in is by being a Jewish leader. Till today, with all the work that you do yes. around the world. I'm not saying I don't feel Jewish. No, no, I understand. I fit in the mainstream. I do belong, but I don't fit. Meaning I am a leader and I lead forward. And when I look just at the mainstream, I feel like mm, that's not my place because I signed up for something much bigger than this. I'm going to have to bring people forward in this. So I, I vacillate between that. Who am I to teach people Torah? I'm freshly in. Even now it's 40, almost 42 years, but like a chutzpah. I should think I have Torah to teach to Jews who are born Jewish on the one hand. And on the other hand, I feel like, wait a second. I started as a very young teenager. I learned a lot. And what I learned is something very different than what most people learned. Because I didn't come to observance like a Balchuva did. A, a lot of Balchuva come because they take a look behind them and they say, wow, that's a lot of history. That's pretty amazing. 
this whole chain of transmission that brought me from Sinai till today. Like my family survived a lot of stuff physically to get me here. And plus spiritually, they made a lot of decisions to bring me here. I'm only identifying as Jewish today because of 3,300 years of miracles. And so therefore I must have a responsibility to take part in that. That is a way of thinking that maybe people don't think out the whole thought, but that's mm -hmm. there for a lot of biology. Right. Whereas Aguirre doesn't come from that at all. My own process was not that. What was My it? My process was I am looking for something important that gives meaning and direction to the world and my life. And once I found the Torah, I'm like, oh my gosh, look at this. I didn't find the Jewish people. I found the Torah first. Do you see what this is? Look at all the tools that are in here. This is an amazing toolbox. What you could transform yourself and all of humanity with this. Let's get this project done. It was all a sense of possibility, not a sense of responsibility. How did you learn so much about the Torah if you weren't part of it? Like, how did you know about the toolbox? How did you know the manual? When were you reading it or understanding it? It took me a while to realize that. So really, Hashem called me in, like, really, 14 years old to figure this out. I didn't. Seriously, what? Seriously, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> Hashem just, like, tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, I've got a project. I need you in. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to create some questions in your mind. <laughs> Wow. And I, I want to share that with you based on some earlier conversations we had mm. too. There could be anger about a childhood or about what you were given and what you weren't given. But it's part of the journey that has to oh get us gosh, to our task. Like right now, looking back, I can say, I am so thankful for my good enough parents. Were they great? They were not great. Were they bad? They were not bad. They were good mm. enough. They gave me enough that I had the capacity to take care of myself in the world and the resilience and the mm. independence to go to Israel alone at 16, right? Across the planet without cell phones. Right. Or even really much phones at all. Right. Just a, a Simone phone if you're lucky. Right. And I yeah. made that happen. I did that myself. Right. Because they gave me the tools for that. But they also didn't give me enough. They didn't give me enough so that I needed to do that. So on the one hand, they gave me the capacity to do that. And on the other hand, they gave me the emptiness that created the void that I needed to find the, for me. The truth for you but felt real. Right. Which is very interesting because what I did research on belonging there is false belonging, which a lot of Orthodox people do, and it's very conditional. And kids leave Orthodoxy because they feel conditional belonging and they're looking for something more meaningful. So they leave it. So you left your home. You were off the derech from your home. Totally. Because you were not feeling fulfilled. You didn't feel enough there. And you said, okay, I need a little, I need more. Right. And where am I going to find this more? I don't know how you found Judy. Judaism. I don't, I'm not really sure. What I did hear a few weeks ago, which was fascinating to me by one of my off the derech Christian friends, she told me that she grew up very Christian. Like her mother is like the Rebetzin. I don't know. What do you call it? The, the pastor's wife. Yeah, exactly. But very hardcore, always doing missionary work. And, and they're always in a shlichut somewhere. And she said her whole life, they were taught that they have to serve the Jews because you can't be a Jew, but if you're serving the Jews, so at least you're connected to them because they're the chosen ones. And I was floored by this. That's fascinating. All right. There's many different Christian streams. I came from a very lightly connected Protestant stream. Mm -hmm. And there is a difference between Jews 
by choice from Protestant backgrounds and Jews by choice from Catholic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Catholics, for instance, understand guilt. And so that works out very well. They told a Catholic Catholic background Jew by choice understands how to guilt their teenagers. Mm. It took me until my kids were teenagers, because I come from a Protestant background, to realize, oh my gosh, this is a whole tool parenting tool that I am not accessing of right. guilt trips. <laughs> it's right. not for my family. We don't have that. So that's not what I did with my kids. But that being said, there is, it's a whole different background. So my parents weren't concerned in the Protestant world that you're not counting Protestants like you count Jews. Like we as Jews feel every single Jew as a loss, religious or not religious. We care about each individual one and whether they belong or don't belong. We take it personally. Protestants do not. It's not a thing. It's not a Protestant nation with a mission in the world to anything. It's a lot of Protestants who have their own relationship with God on whatever level, higher and lower, depending on where they're holding. But if you're a religious Protestant, very religious Protestant, you might object to your child's Jewish journey because you might feel like, oh my gosh, now she's not going to be saved. Now she's going to burn an everlasting lake of hellfire because of her choices. She's rejected that. She's rejected what she needs to embrace in order to be saved. So there could be that. And I have an uncle who feels that way very strongly. Mm-hmm. That's not how my parents felt at all. My parents were a very liberal um, tradition and they really felt like they taught me that all religions are paths, the same destination. We just walk on different paths. That's beautiful. Don't you think that's beautiful? That's a gift that they gave you. That was a gift that they gave me. If you think of your life now, maybe that is a big foundation that they gave you. It, it is because it allowed me to choose at that time. At, when, at 12, 13, when I was looking. With no judgment. I realized the path that my parents are raising me on is not my path. I was right. very clear, probably another path for me. And really that's how I found Judaism was by looking for a path. What is my path? Did you look into Buddhism? Did you look into yeah. Hinduism, all these other to see? And- I did. But as a child, again, 13, 14. Yes, I went to chakra workshops and psychic healing workshops and meditation workshops and whatever I could. And it was 1978. There was no internet, but I was reading books and thinking things through. Once I decided that there is actually a God, because first I was looking for non-God pathways, Scientology Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Then I decided, okay, I need to look for a God pathway that works for me. I was a freshman in high school and I just went to the religion shelf in our public school library. And I just read across the shelf, right? Started on one end and read across until I got to the book to be a Jew. And when I read that book, I'm like, I am home. This is it. What was it? What was it that was home for you? First of all, I'll just have to say that was Hashem calling me home. No question about it. Like, first of all, why should that book have been in a library with not a Jew in the school, 1400 kids and not a single Jew in the school? Like it was not Mm. in Portland, Oregon. There was not a Jew in that school, not even in the staff or faculty, but that book was there for me. So what I liked was there's a one God concept that's very clean. It's your direct relationship. There's no intermediaries. And again, I was a child (laughs) reading this. 14 is very very yeah. young. But then also all kinds of interesting things that make meaning. There's ceremonies, there's delineation, there's things to do on different times in different ways, candles to light, spices to smell and different foods to eat and holidays to have. There's a whole system set up. I just felt like I am home. This is what I want. I can do this. And I didn't know any Jews at the time. I just kept checking that book out of the library or not returning it on time, whichever it was, but I just kept reading it and thinking, okay, this, these are my people. I have to meet them, but this is my book. Was it scary for you? Like to think, did you, like when you were saying, okay, I need to become one of the Jewish people. Was it like climbing Everest to say, okay, it's a nice dream, but can I really climb Everest? 
So I didn't know enough about the Jews to even have that fear. Oh, okay. So that was good for you. Yeah, it was good for me. It's like a kid learning how to drive. They're just stupid. They don't really realize they could kill themselves or somebody else on the road. So you didn't really know about the Jewish people to know how to belong to them. Right. You just, oh, I'm adapting. I'm going to be a Jew. I didn't know how persecuted they were. I didn't know how important they were. I didn't know how small they were. I didn't know how rare they were. I didn't know how special they were. I just knew from this book that I am this. And then? That's it. So then I was a freshman in high school. Then I needed to find a Jew because I knew I was Jewish, but I knew that probably the Jews wouldn't think I was Jewish until I converted. How did you know about conversion? Because most religions have conversion. So you knew that it's not just like I'm adopting this religion. I have to go through a process. Right. I knew there had to be a process somewhere. I didn't know how to access that process, but I knew that I was. Okay. Hashem guided it where I met a Jewish woman who was not observant mm -hmm. at all. She had a kosher home or a Shabbos, but she was traditional. She came from European parents. I had all kinds of questions for her and she didn't have all the answers, but she knew that the rabbi of her synagogue might have some of those answers. Mm. So she invited me to come some Friday after school. We'll cook together. We'll make a Shabbos dinner. And then after that, we could go to the synagogue and I could see what it's like. So I said, great. How about this week? And I went that week and every week thereafter for a year and a half to her house after school. We cooked together, non-kosher, Friday night dinners. I don't even know if we lit candles. We didn't make Kiddush. Maybe we said Hamotzi. I'm not sure. Did she have a family? And she was divorced and she had one son okay, younger than me. That summer, the rabbi gave a sermon about Camp Salman Shechter and how important summer camp is for the Jewish identity and adult development of a Jew for life is a Jew that has gone to Camp Salman Shechter. And I thought, I want to be a Jew for life. <laughs> I probably need to go to Camp Salman Shechter. Did you tell him at this point that you're trying to convert or you was still? Yeah, I told him right away. Oh, and okay. he said, that's very nice, but you're too young. So no, but I was very frustrated because I was old enough to have made that decision. I did research and I knew what I wanted to be. Okay. And I knew that I had arrived at my destination and to have a, an adult hold me back. Was, what do you mean? Anyway, so I went to camp and at camp is where I learned about Shabbat and Kashrut and Havdalah. Kiddush, Hamotzi, benching. They took you as a non-Jew? Yeah, he said I could go. He was the, the rabbi of the shul, was the rabbi of the camp too. Mm. And, and he let me go. And I decided that at camp is where I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to see if I can pass. I'll see if I've learned enough now to see if I could pass. Was it scary? It was a little bit scary, but it was also interesting because on the hand, I was the same age as the other kids. It was a teen session mm. at the end of the summer, 10 days. Of course, everybody else's parents or grandparents had paid for camp. I earned the money to go to camp myself. So I wanted to milk every second. Like I wasn't there <laughs> just to have a good time. I was there to learn. Right. This is a workshop for me. There's no such thing as hanging out for me free time. Like I went to the cantor's cabin to learn Hebrew and sit on the front porch with him and practice my reading. And I want to use every minute of every bit of wisdom I could get. So I did learn how to read Hebrew there. And that cantor was a Holocaust survivor. And he's the only adult in the whole process that questioned me. Everybody else is basically like slowing me down maybe, or encouraging me or just teaching when I asked a question. But he actually said, are you sure you want to cast your lot with the Jewish people? And I didn't understand the question coming from a Protestant background. And I knew I had privilege as a white girl because my parents were very involved in civil rights. I knew like I'm a white girl from a Protestant background in this country. I have every privilege. Police are my friend. The legislators <laughs> are probably family members. We founded this country. I belong here. What risk is there at all in casting my lot with the Jewish people? 
Facebook. I just thought he was saying to me in a fancy way, are you sure you want to be Jewish? So my answer was, yes, I'm sure I want to be Jewish. But I had no clue what he was asking. It took me years to understand actually what he was asking me. He didn't explain it because that's a big, it's a loaded question. And you have to make sure that the answer is coming from understanding. But if you come from a background that's so clear to you, you can't even understand that the other person doesn't understand your question. Just like when Jews ask me, how did your parents feel about your conversion? They're asking from that Jewish perspective of, didn't your parents go like- Grieve the loss of their daughter that lost their mind to a different exactly. religion. That, and they, they can't even imagine that there would be another way because it's such a Jewish question to ask how we feel about a family member making a different choice. But only now have I seen enough from that bird's eye view to realize, okay, that's a question based in a cultural reality that the other person can't understand. So I've had some of those cultural reality moments. Like I, I taught my children, for instance, the, the halachas, the laws of honoring and respecting their parents, which there are laws of that. And some of those laws include standing for your parent when they come in from outside, possibly coming into every room. But the way we did it in our house is if your parent is coming in from outside, right. like they were on a trip, they went grocery shopping, whatever it is, right. when they walk in the door, you right. stand for them, right. stand and greet. Our kids did that for both of us. We taught our kids to do that. So when my parents would come to visit, I stood for them. I served them, took right. care of them according to those laws. And my father thought it was ridiculous. What are you standing for me? But that's not, that's not my culture. That's your culture. I don't feel respected when you stand for me. But you're doing it for yourself, really. I was doing it for myself and to set an example for my children right. also. But from that, I learned there are different cultural languages. I just was staying at somebody's house recently who made sure that I had food for the plane, which I didn't need. I had, but she was so clear. She's like, in our house, food is the sixth love language. She said, let me pack you food. I'm like, fine. <laughs> Especially if there's a Jewish mom. Exactly. And it's just, that's not the thing in right. the Protestant world. Like I, I have a daughter who wanted very much to explore some of the other part of her family heritage. Mm-hmm. Now she's born Jewish. She's not observant right now, but she's born Jewish. So she knows and into a Jewish family with all this like tradition in recipes in days and so much thought in everything. So she asked my father, are there any like family, do we have any like family recipes for Christmas or anything? He's like, sure, eggnog. She said, great, how do you do that? He said, you go to the store, you buy a quart of eggnog, take a quart of bourbon and you pour it together. And she's like, no, like a recipe. It's like a family recipe. (laughs) He didn't even know what she's talking about. There's no, this is what we eat on this holiday. That's that time that's that invested with any kind of, none of that doesn't exist. It's a different cultural language altogether. So how long did it take you to actually learn in order to pass? the exams. So I was actually very lucky that I converted at a much earlier time than now. We do have a tradition that when Mashiach comes, conversion will be over. And I feel like the closer Mashiach gets and Mashiach is getting closer somehow, the door is narrower. Like it could be, imagine those adventure movies, like when you like the gate is coming down into the like electrical plant and you Mm. need to save the day and you slide under that gate at the last Mm. minute before it like slams onto the ground. So it could be like that. The one Mashiach comes, the gate comes down. Or it could be like slow moving gates that just close, close and narrow the aperture. But you could see them closing and you can still run through. Mm. So I got in before the gates were closing. They're not closed, but it's much harder today. Because they think that there's a motive behind it and it's not sincerity converting. What is the fear? Why do you think it's closing? I think it's closing because Mashiach is coming. I think it's a spiritual underpinning. Yeah. So what does that mean? That means that the bar is being raised higher 
we have clear like proofs from texts at different places that the bar was actually much lower at different times. If you look in the Shulchan Aruch, the bar is pretty low. You teach, it basically says, someone who comes to convert, teach them two hard ones. Right. But at that time, 400 years ago, where were you coming from? If you came to convert, you had already rejected your whole past because there was no living with a foot in two worlds. Mm-hmm. Not emotionally, not spiritually, and not physically. So you had to give up your family, give up your religion, and give up your house, wherever you lived, and move into the Jewish community, because you couldn't be Jewish without living inside the Jewish community. And then it was teach them two hard ones, two easy ones, and diff them, because you're already in like the womb of the Jews there to, to transform. And there were very few converts. So you put one in a city, in a country, one, and they're easily absorbed into the Jewish people. And that's why we know the names of some of them, like Avram ben Avraham. So that famous Ger, the Ger. The Ger. The Ger. Right. <laughs> now we have a lot of people because it is Erev Mashiach and a lot of sparks are waking up and being called home. And so they, they are looking and they're coming from all different directions. Mm. And so the bar has been raised. So now instead of just teach them two and two, you've got to move into the Eruv. You've got to live there for a year. You've got to put your kids in Jewish schools. Of course, that makes all sense. You just have to say it out. But just makes it harder. But do you think it was done in order to protect the Jews from from authentic people joining? Or what, what was the reason for making it much harder to join the Jewish nation? I think it is. If you're part of the Jewish people, you are part of the leadership group. We are here for a reason. It's not just, I believe this way. It's not like converting Lahav deal to the Christianity where you have to believe in that. That's not being part of the Jews. Yes, you have to believe, then you have to commit to do. And part of the committing to do and the believing is that I'm part of a group of people where I really matter and they matter too. And we have a job in the world. Now, not everybody believes that. Not everybody understands everything that they take on when they convert. But if we understand the rabbinic consciousness that everyone that we bring in, A, requires an outlay of energy. Like you can't bring in a convert without putting in quite a bit of time into them. It requires the rabbinic time of the rabbi of the shul, the educational director, the people in the community that invite that person over, that integrate them into their Shabbos lunches, that give them that guidance. Like it's Mm -hmm. a big energetic outlay. Do we want, like for whom do we want to give that? Do we want to offer that type of energetic outlay? Only to the one that will be brought in successfully and then won't be an energy drain on the body of Yisrael later on. Well, that's a hard thing for me to swallow. Based on our conversation before we started, that they missed the the audience missed, but it's a bit controversial to like to hear that because it goes back to do we feel better then and are we not better then? When you understand that we have a job in this world, Mm -hmm. which is to be the transformers of all humanity into human beings who have a relationship with the divine that's enduring and meaningful. That's our job, right? And so we're supposed to live that. That's what being an or legoyim is. We're not supposed to broadcast that. It's not a word thing. It's a light shine thing. Or mm-hmm. like we shine so brightly that the nations of the world, and in this case, goyim is not pejorative, could be used in a pejorative way, but not in this verse. We are a light unto the nations should be seeing us shine and saying, wow, look how they illuminate the path forward into meaning and direction connection with the divine that's meaningful that changes our lives and helps the whole planet live in a synergistically beautiful way right in a way the whole planet should be 
And just on the very lowest level, I think a simon of Mashiach coming is Wikipedia, for instance. I'm serious. How gorgeous is Wikipedia? Everybody contributing knowledge for free for the sake of humanity. Let me just write an article. You don't have to pay me. I'm just going to contribute what I know because I want to create something that the whole world can access, that we just all give and can all find what we need. It's a gorgeous thing. Yes, there's abuses, blah, blah, blah. Nevertheless, the concept is gorgeous. Open source science, open source software, open source knowledge headed in a healthy direction. Let me put that on there. That is Mashiach coming into the world where everyone is going to really give what they can and mm -hmm. get what they need. That's why Jews love socialism. Because the concept of everyone giving according to their ability and everyone receiving according to what they need, that's very Jewish. That's an end of days utopian vision that every human being is cared for and actualized and given to, but actualized. Like it's not just lie back, give me a universal basic income just because I exist. It's a Everyone gets to give according to what they have to give. That's why in the IDF, they have a beautiful unit in the IDF for special needs soldiers. Like how much work does it take to have that unit? Does it really overall benefit the IDF? Mm -hmm. You know, it takes a lot of work to have that unit. Nevertheless, every single Jew counts. Every single human being shall be given the opportunity to give according to what they can. And they need to be actualized. We see the benefit to the whole Jewish people and then to the whole world that we actualize people. We educate according to their needs. We believe in universal education. We want to make sure people are empowered to be who they could be. It's a beautiful thing. And if you're not part of the leadership team that says every single person counts, every single person's created in the image of God, and every single person should be brought forward and cared for because of that, then you don't really belong you know, I'm the Jewish team. That's the Jewish team. That's our goal. Lisa, you're talking and I'm thinking, my God, how far do these beautiful words that you're saying, how far is it from the reality that we're living in the Orthodox world? So that's what Gullus is. Gullus is the distance between us and our goals. We're in Gullus. So let's bring this conversation back to belonging. So you converted. How fast did you find belonging in Judaism? Like, when did you say I belong? I knew I belonged the first day I opened that book. So you felt belonging besides when you went to Israel that you said you didn't but I feel... belong to Hashem. Okay. So it, there's so many different places. And I would say there are so many different moments, so many. And it's an evolving thing. The sense of belonging constantly evolves. But even at Camp Solomon Schechter, that 10 days, I also felt a huge shift. And I wonder if that's actually where the new soul came in before the mikvah. Because mm. I definitely felt a difference. Like I was mm. an ornery, feisty child, chutzpahdik. Dafkanik. My parents didn't have the word chutzpah or dafka, mm. but possibly in a slight allusion to Jews. <laughs> they used to call me their New York lawyer. I would fight about everything. I split hairs about everything. No. Constant hair splitter, constant lick. And that feistiness, that that ornery feistiness left me at Camp Salmashefter. I felt it go. I felt like a smoothening of my Because you didn't need to anymore. You felt like maybe you didn't need to. I don't know, but it did exit. And in my short childish journey of looking for different places, I had learned something about a thing called a, a walk-in or a walk-out where a soul's in trouble in a body and some, whatever it is, sends another soul to walk in. And I felt like maybe that happened to me. 
like just the hard part of me walked out. It was gone. And a new piece of curiosity and safe adventure, because teenagers can do a lot of unsafe adventure, but, and my parents may have objected to my use of the word safe when I was traveling around the world to a war-torn country with nobody that I knew and mm-hmm. a language that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I felt that was a safe adventure yeah. that walked in and I was able to be in a space for two years in this seminary where other girls at that time, it was a lot of stern girls and some others were arguing about women's rights and women's roles. And like, it, it wasn't my argument. I learned from morning till night. I loved it. It was the first time I was in an environment with people who had intellectual parity. Where did you go? I went to Mechlelet Brewery. Who were the rabbis there at the time? Or the who do you remember that made the most impact on you? It was Malkabina and Rabbi Yitzhak Tzuriel and Esther Kitov and and Heidi Waldman. Oh, big leaders. Oh, wow, wow. Big names. Special people. Again, I was in, like, what did I know? I was so, when I got there, there were not very many English books at the time. And I bought the list of books they said to buy. And so it was Mishnah every morning. Some girls were learning Gemara. I wasn't up to that. So it was Mishnah every morning. The whole morning was Mishnah. Mm-hmm. So the tutorial, translation, then learn it through with a Chavrusa and then a Shior after that. Lunch and then twice a week, Mishnah Brura, Halacha. Twice a week in the afternoon was Mishnah Torah, Hashkafa. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it's like Mishnah, Mishnah. There's so many Mishnahs over here. Right. Mishnah Torah, Mishnah. And it was like, it was hard. I was always the smartest girl in my class in public school, in inner city public school. And when I got here, I was not. And first of all, that was hard. Also, the language, you didn't know how to read Hebrew. I didn't know. I mean, yeah, I read it, but I didn't understand it. I didn't even know the letters in order. I knew how to read each letter, the sound wow. and the wow. together into a word. But I couldn't even use a dictionary yet because I didn't know them in order to be able to look something up. But I loved it. And the more yeah. I learned, the more I loved it. I knew I was home and there was so much to learn. I was absorbing so, and I was exhausted by the end of the day. That intellectual exercise, that's it. We learned right. from seven to seven and I basically slept from 7.30 to 6.30. It was exhausting. Right. But I loved it. So I just, I absorbed a ton. And of course, at the end of the year, when I was supposed to go home, I was like, there is just no way. This is not not a one-year experience this right. is life altering like i right. need to stay right and and i was and fortunate stay. to be able to arrange that yeah yeah so i want to jump forward to you um coming back to america meeting your husband you wanted to live in israel but he opened a practice in a law firm in america and it just was more practical to live in america you started having children having the kiruv home right Right. Shabbatot, classes, you talk about how you used to give the little shiurim in Long Beach and you were right near the five towns. So you had all the rebbitsons from the five towns and you were inspiring. You were the open vessel and you're like, just give me more Yiddishkeit, give me more knowledge, just give me nonstop. At the same time, life is happening. Your kids are growing up. At what point did you move to Denver? We moved here 21 years ago. How old was your oldest? She was 50. She was going into 10th grade. Okay. And you had all six children already by then? I had six children. Yeah. Six kids in seven and a half years. So you're growing your spirituality and religion and you're just soaking it all up. At the same time, where's your husband at this journey? At the same time, he's busy. That's life stage for men of age 23 to 40. 
mm-hmm. is a life stage. It's a developmental stage for men. And that life stage is increasing earning capacity. Right. Supporting the family. That was very, he was very busy in that life stage and appropriately right. building right. his capacity. Right. Whether it was learning things or whatever classes he was taking, but really it was the everyday, all day long grind of work that a New York lawyer does. The leaving the house at six and the coming back at midnight every single day and the occasional sleeping over at his parents in Manhattan because there wasn't time to come home. He was the Abashel Shabbat coming home for the weekend yep. and you were full-time mom, full-time carpooling, mom. cooking, laundry, giving classes, inspiring, right. doing like the machine, the constant machine, yeah. not even thinking. Right. I thought sometimes, I remember thinking sometimes like, all the carpools and all the driving and all the doctor's appointments and all the homage plays were all me. One time going through the Atlantic Beach Bridge thinking, sorry for myself, I'm like a single mother. I do all this by myself. Like I, nobody is helping me, blah, right. blah, blah. And as I pull through having paid my bridge token, I'm like, where did that money come from? He's busy working all day long that you should be in this car and have the money for that toll and be able to go to the five towns and buy the groceries that you want to buy. And you get to go to a shear and you get to give a shear because he's supporting your life so you can do that. So pull yourself around, young lady, and be appreciative for what he gives you. You are not a single mother. Like you do a lot of these things alone, but you have somebody who loves you every night, who sleeps Mm -hmm. next to you in bed and will give you some support emotionally, even if he's not there all the time. Right. And the financial support is huge. And he only does that because he loves you and cherishes you all the time. Yeah perspective. Decide what you want to focus on. Right. But he was busy with that. So we did have it divided and we had made that agreement. Right. He would earn the money for the household and I would run the household. We made an agreement that would be more traditional in male and right. female roles. And the weekend was very much a family weekend or was it more a communal weekend because you were more of a Kiro family? Like let's open our house for everyone. Our house was open on Shabbos. So it was very Kiruv Shabbos and fun, lots of singing. And then depending on the week, either he would have to go back to work on Sundays or we did family things on Sundays. We'd go to old Bethpage Farms. We loved that. Even to the point where I made everybody clothes that matched. So all the Mm -hmm. girls got to dress up in their Laura Ingalls outfits and the boys Mm -hmm. in their suspenders. And we'd pack lunches in baskets and go to old Bethpage and have fun. Coney Island, Bronx Zoo, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. We definitely had those Sundays were very important in our family life. Right. And spirituality. Did you always feel that you were more spiritual, hungry for connection with tradition and Hashem and than he was, even though he was born into it? Yeah, I was always hungrier. And what's interesting is the level of judgment that comes on both sides. Or in Hebrew, they say, somebody who's to my right or to my left, they're extremists. I, of course, occupy the golden middle ground of center. But that's everybody believes that about themselves. But it was interesting to me to see what a threat I posed to certain family members of his family as I continued my journey of what they might call heredification. But as I moved, there wasn't the right camp for me in the United States. In Israel, I was in the the Bnei Akiva Chazak, Dati Lomi strong group. And there isn't that in the United States. There's modern Orthodox, which is to the left of that. And then there's Haredi, which is to the right. But both of them have different attitudes also. I had a hard time finding my place for somebody who was on a serious journey of connection with Hashem, with the text, with the Jews in a meaningful way. I connected to, it was hard to find that. But I, I did finally find an opening through Tehillah Yeager and her text-based learning. That's what I love. 
and and learning with her in a text-based way opened a whole doorway into a feminine world of text-based learning because where I learned before was very masculine modality Mm. and this opened the door into a feminine I just didn't know there was such a thing and I loved it it just it was a very different world that worked for me very nicely still it was a a subset of the Haredi world but that Shar Yashuv Freifeld Jaeger way at that time was very important in my transformation and just in my continued growth and right. I sent my kids to those schools and my husband was on board. He's like, look, I make the money. You run the house. That's our deal. That's really beautiful. Like he, he really said here, it's yours. And he I did, basically, and there were some things we didn't agree on, but basically it was in my hands. We used to joke that we were a modern Orthodox couple because he was modern and I was Orthodox. <laughs> that's funny. That's, that's really funny. So, <laughs> so when your kids were growing up, did they see the differences? Yeah. So for some of them, they felt it because I sent them to Farakaway to the right, more right-wing schools. So most of the fathers were Rebbies and their father was a lawyer. So that was a difference right there. And even if I would have sent to the five town schools, so most of their fathers were successful businessmen. My husband's like kind of in the middle. As Donnie said one time, he sang, a, I listened to a recording he made about how our family said, we're not rich, we're not poor, we are medium. So we're not going to Florida for a winter break. And we're not flying to Israel for mm-hmm. anything ever. Like we never took an airplane flying family trip. We didn't have right. that. We paid tuitions right. instead. You were grateful that you were paying your bills and you were yeah. not in debt, but there were no luxuries. Well, it's a luxury. We had some, we had plenty of food on our table and our kids were all in Jewish schools and everybody had clothes to wear. And we're so thankful for that. And we didn't have the extra, like the mm-hmm. big time luxuries. So right. we made some chas for all of our children, right. but it, it wasn't like five towns level. It was Long Beach. <laughs> Yeah. Out of town for the in-town area. Did it bother your kids that you were on different hashkafa level? At that time, I don't think they realized it. They didn't. Um, I don't think so. Not at that time. Because we went to shul every week together as a family. So Mm -hmm. we went together as a family. He didn't go early Mm -hmm. and I came later. Or maybe he did even. But he wasn't like careful to go on time every... But that's just how their father was. And we had Shabbos and we sang at the table. And and then he wasn't around during the rest of the week. I put them to bed with a Shema every night. And if he put them to bed, he'd sing them like... Hebrew songs like maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't the Shema and it was for sure and not that he wouldn't have said the Shema with them he probably would have at that time but like he knew like some of the old pioneery songs right. Israel that he loved that he sang those to them at night but in general it was me that put them to bed and the really the religious differences became more apparent as they got older and after he moved to Denver and he did agree to move to the Haredi neighborhood in Denver mm-hmm. not the modern yeah. one right he felt that was better for our kids at that time Right. You know, both the kids were going to the high schools. The high schools were on this side of town. We mm-hmm. want them to be close by. Part of it was he saw the results. The kids were coming out great. This system seems to be working. And we had discussed it. You put them in, you put them in less from schools, they get better secular education, but you have to make up on the Yiddishkeit. Put them in more from schools so they get better Jewish education, but you have to make up on the secular education. And I really felt like I was more equipped to make up on the secular education than on the Yiddishkeit. Right. So I'd rather put them in, if it's going to be out of balance, put them in the firmer schools and I'll take them on summer trips or we'll read books together or whatever it is. We'll get a different exposure that way. And he saw it was working. So he was thankful for that. So you once told me that after your three losses, losing your son and losing two grandchildren, one right after birth, one of the twins... And the second grandchild after a very a bad illness and just seeing the suffering at which when your husband said, if there is a God, I'm no longer going to be a part of this. I don't want to be a part of this God's life that can bring so much pain. And you said, I am leaning into God right? and he is just 
backing out a little bit and saying, you know what, I, I don't want to have anything to do with this, God. How old were your kids at that stage? Were everybody, was everyone out of the house at that stage already? At that stage, yes, everybody was out of the house. Okay. And there were lots of other differences along the way. And they right. started to see where he ate or whatever, that he didn't dive in every day or even put on tefillin at home. There wasn't that. They understood that by then. And that I was the, jokingly, but I was a religious fanatic and he was not. Like that, But that we made it. Like they saw that. That's, I think, the number one question that when I said that I'm interviewing, everybody wanted to know. When there are kids in the house and their differences, the one that's makbid on kosher, Shabbos, tefillin, even, let's take it even less, fila Tibor or Zmanet Fila, stuff like that, Minion, whatever. How do you show up for the children with respect to one another and not fearing that you're jeopardizing so, their chinuch and their future? You're so passionate about the truth, the derech Hashem and doing it. And he is just, you know what? I'm not interested. And I'm okay turning my phone on in Shabbos. And I, I have zero connection with Tfilin. I think a lot of people make assumptions. And you can't go all the way. Like you just said, how do you do this and not fear that your kids will X, Y, and Z? Is there something that's preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness? Maybe it's anxiety or stress. BetterHelp.com will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available depending on what you need and the services available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send messages to your counselor. BetterHelp.com is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. They make it easy and free to change your counselors if you need to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp.com wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com slash hope to recharge. That's BetterHelp com slash hope to recharge and join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. You'll also get 10% off your first month. Once again, that's betterhelp.com slash hope to recharge. How do you do this and not fear that your kids will X, Y, and Z? You can't. The fear is there, you're saying. The fear is there. So the question is, how do you go there and deal with that fear? Really, that's a two. Oh, I love that. How do you stay in a marriage with somebody that you love, who you share children with, so you share a past, that you've chosen to share a future with this person, and you're in different spaces, and live with the fear of the consequences on the children? First of all, there's the absolutely practical place of what will happen if we get divorced. If we get divorced, we'll have two separate houses. One will be kosher and one will not be kosher. One will be Shomer Shabbos, one will not be Shomer Shabbos. And the kids will go back and forth. And so then what? And and then there's this whole, you have to pick, like which parent you support, mm. which lifestyle you like better, like that's bad for kids. Mm. So once you realize we are on different religious pathways and that's not changing, but it doesn't have to be in two separate houses. It could be in one house where there could still be a unified path of love and respect and trust. So we chose that love, respect, and trust. And so the kitchen is kosher according to my standards, because I'm the one who cares about it. And so he saw that you're the one who cares about kosher. So we should go by your standards because it's, you're the one who cares if I don't care. So I could eat wherever I want outside of the house, but I'm not going to hurt you by changing the standards of the kitchen that you eat from every day. So that's love, respect, and trust. 
But that's huge. Alina, you're huge. saying it in a sentence. When you break it down, first of all, your husband's saying, I'm going to pay premium kosher food, premium. I can buy for a quarter of the price, What you're going to be paying out of town for premium. I can't get half of the things and I'm the working one. Right. And I'm supporting your dream and your fantasy because this is all Bubba Mises for me. How much love is there, right? Uh, a lot. Oh my God, how much selflessness is in him to say, I so respect you, Aliza. I so love you that I'm going to pay premium for right. what matters to you. Right. And not only that, but I'll eat gross cheese. Yes. <laughs> he loves cheese. Yes. <laughs> but kosher cheese does not hold a candle. Or wine. Wine, finally, there's decent wine. It's not the same. Not the same. Amivushal is never the same. What's so interesting? What's so interesting from the Orthodox point of view, everybody is thinking Aliza is the one that's giving up more than he. She's accepting him the way he is. And she's not saying, oh, I want better. I want orthodoxy. I want my truth. And you left our truth that we joined together. Right. We came into this agreement that we're Orthodox family. You left the orthodoxy. So I'm the one that was surprised here. Like what right. happened? You changed the rules. You but, change the rules, but in a way, he is really showing up just as is. much, if not more, because he he's saying something that's so paining me, which is God, I don't feel God. And it's my pain. It's my struggle. And I'm going to show up for you, for your God, for your yeah. meaning. Yeah. How beautiful is that? It's stunning. It really is stunning. That's what our kids see. It doesn't mean that each kid is religious. They're not, but each kid is honest. Mm. and pure and Beautiful. giving and caring and respectful truly and deeply in a really gorgeous way if you think about children what we want to really gift our children is it only shmira shabbos your program to keep shabbos to go to minyan to put on tefillin but inside you're just not a kind human being you're not accepting of somebody else you're judgmental is that a good jew i hope that in their journeys those who are not observant will come into a relationship with hashem at some point but that's on them and that's what i realized also as somebody who chose in is we all get to choose our life and everybody has to make that choice themselves and the choice evolves over time, according to your understanding. So the story's not written just like it is right now. It's still in process. There's many chapters ahead, this Radisham. But that is part of it is that we have chosen a life together. We've chosen to be together in that life and respect each other. So yes, he's tremendously respectful. And I am too. We work together yeah. on this and create space for each other. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. Do you think that you're an interesting phenomenon that really can't work so easily, but because you're two very MS Dika people, non-judgmental, that can make it work? Is it really workable for the average you with a lot of baggage and a lot of fears? And as you said, you can't think that it won't fear. There is. It's how do you face the fear? How do you right. show up? Is it reasonable to think that it could be so popular? It's interesting. I, I do feel like this is part of the Geula work, actually, because we're in the end of days and we need to bring all the Jews into this program, all of them. So for some, it's going to be through tshuva. For some of them, it's going to be through marriage to another Jew. Whatever the process is, some Jews are leaving and other Jews are following and other Jews are trying to bring them back. And like we're all engaged. If you think about it, like we're all engaged with Hashem, with the Torah, and with the Jewish people in different ways than we expected. Certainly 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we're each doing something different. Whether we're making a podcast, whether we're writing articles, whether we're eating treith when we were raised eating kosher, or whether we're getting a tattoo that says Hashem 
Melech Hashem Malach Hashem Yimloch Le'elam Ba'ed, on our arms, right? Because we want to proclaim to the world that we feel that way. With a tattoo, like people are doing such different things, but it is in a way, cosmically, it's different Jews exploring different ways to be Jewish, to bring the Jewish people together here at this time through all the different pathways that there are today. And that's the work of being a Jew is constantly exploring that new way. And some of those new ways lead to dead ends. And some of those new ways are woven into the beautiful tapestry of the Jewish people and who we are. Once I went to a Havdalah ceremony once, it never occurred to me. She said, we light two candles in the beginning of Shabbos, but the end of Shabbos, we light this braided candle because we've integrated so much. And I think that's so beautiful to think about how you start Shabbos as separate entities and mm-hmm. Shabbos integrated. And if you think about this like process of the world, how we start as individuals, but our job is to become integrated as a Jewish people with each other and then with all humanity in a Jewish kind of a way. So that's what we're doing here. And so can it work? It's hard work. It can't work if you expect a classic, whatever, we're going to raise our kids the way our kids, the way we were raised, the way our grandparents were raised. This is what we're going to do. No, then you can't do that. But if you're willing to say, look, I'm going to try to be as Jewish as I could be with the best of my understanding every day of my life, then you embrace every day of your life to be as Jewish as you could be with the best of your understanding, however that is. And if you're in relationship with people who aren't in that space, it doesn't change the space that you're in. You're still going to be as Jewish as you could be to the best of your understanding every single day of your life with other Jews. So that's what I'm doing. Would I advise a young couple on very different pages to get married? I think it's a real challenge. It's risky. It's not just risky. It's really hard. It's a very hard bridge to build. It can be built, but it's very hard. And there's enough building bridges between male and female and family and desire. That's a hard enough bridge to build if you also have to bridge the, the, the gap of observance. So I do think it's better to start out on a very similar page if you can. And sometimes you can't. You know, sometimes you just meet that person and there's such a click and the differences are so big that you say the click is this big what we share is that big and we're just going to jump in and make this work i think there are some couples who can do that but it is easier if you could be closer at least in the beginning so we had that opportunity we were never on exactly the same page but we were closer in the beginning and then we just signed up for just like people fall apart physically you still marry them you still live with them there's diabetes there's little heart issues memory loss But religion has such a heavy factor, as we said before, it's every moment in our life is around religion, how we lead our lives. How do we not fall out of love? How do we not say, because marriage is based on it's really how do we make religion not the davar? Say it in English. If you're saying marriage is a conditional love, it's right. conditioned on something. How do we make sure it's not conditioned on religion? Yes. That's an excellent question. Because I think a lot of people are lost in that and they yes. don't actually know how to make a relationship. Mm. So there's a relationship with Hashem. Uh, the whole reason that we get married is so that we can experience the different relationships that we have. The reason we have parents also, we could have just been amoebas that just don't need parents and just separated that way, even as human beings. We need parents, we need children, we need siblings, we need spouses, all to teach us different ways of relating so that we can understand different ways that Hashem relates to us. So it's all about relationships and how we build them. And we can build them even with hard times. And if you understand that with Hashem too, 
you have a relationship with Hashem that goes through dark, cold times and warm, fuzzy times mm-hmm. and prickly distance nice. times. And it doesn't mean you leave the relationship. You just, it's a little prickly right now. And you'd rather not like be so close. Mm-hmm. That happens. Right. And then there are warm, yummy times that are so delicious. You're just like totally in love, but that's part of a relationship. And we see that in marriage. That's where you don't leave a marriage. Like there's cold times and yummy times and prickly times and challenging times and ecstatically wonderful times. And you aim, of course, for more good than bad. And if you're in it, you realize that's what a relationship is made up of is so many different types. And you want to work on building your relationship so that your relationship is dependent on what you're building together and not on religion. Religion is a container for that relationship, but it's not the relationship itself. Clearly, many people are in relationships without religion. Your marriage is, unlike all the other relationships that's of choice, you can't choose out of being your parent's child or being out of your child's parent or being out of sibling. You can't choose out. You can Mm. choose out of marriage. So it is dependent on your choice to be in it. I would say Mm. that's the thing that it should be dependent on is your choice. Yeah. And not feeling a victim of, oh, I gave up so much. If it's your choice, you're no longer a victim. That for sure is a very important thing is to make a choice because then you're not a victim. Even when you choose it, you you get to choose your attitude, but to choose to be in this partnership that, yeah, we're choosing this and we're going to be as respectful, kind, and loving as we can, which doesn't mean there's not prickly times, but respectful, kind, and loving who doesn't want to live in respectful, kind, and loving. So why shouldn't you build that and call each other out when you're destroying that Just say, this is not building respectful, kind, and loving. (laughs) Let's get back to that respectful, kind, and loving thing that we both really enjoy. The other day you said that sometimes you have to choose when to answer back because out of frustration, resentment, even anger. And when you can say, is this going to bring me closer to him or is this going to make me feel a little bit right right now? But is it going to bring us closer or is it going to separate us? And it's the overall goal, right? That's what we were talking about, authenticity. Some people would say it's not authentic to not share your truth that you're angry right now or resentful right now. Is it or is it just wise to keep that to yourself for a little while, process it alone, bring it up later when it's calm, maybe if you need to, but you might not need to. Because the authentic thing is I want warm, loving, kind, respectful. That's what I'm headed towards. If that's the goal. That's for real. Not quiet. A lot of people mistake that for quiet. Right. Like we never bring up anything difficult. So it's quiet. That's right. not warm, loving and respectful. Right. Right. It's- that's distant and cold and quiet. Such a good point. And I was talking to somebody yesterday and he was describing his relationship and how there's such difficulty there. And he says he finally realized he said so much of Perkei Avos do we realize only through relationships of what that means to say, do I really want to say it now? Is it right. important for me right now? What do we want to say? What's our reflex? Like we're going to say it because I'm so much pain, but what's our long-term goal to stay right. in this relationship and how we're going to come closer to each other. And you spoke about it when you said that after your losses, you said we can't lose each other. And we made that conscious choice to turn towards each other rather because you could not turn you could be parallel or you could turn away but we made a conscious choice to turn towards each other and to give each other space to grieve the way that we each needed to grieve and not judge about that who's crying who's not crying when that is how long that is who's laughing and who's not laughing can you laugh again do you judge a person for laughing Mm. so close to a loss like that is that okay is that not okay right 
et cetera, et cetera. But to really make a choice that we support each other in this process, whatever that process is, and just to turn towards each other. Yeah. Aliza, I have a few more questions and then I'll let you go. But I, I asked questions that people wanted me to ask you. Do you think if you didn't have losses, go back and let's say you had six kids, you're still in Long Beach and he decided one day, you know what, this whole religion thing, I'm done. Would you have as compassion and, and savlanut and, and patience and understanding to him? Or would you say, you know what? I don't know if I could do this. I can do it after loss and understand that you lost God. But can I do it without loss? It makes it easier for me to tell the story to others. Because others are very judgmental. Right. What do you mean you're that religious and your husband's not? Like, how could it be? Blah, blah, blah. But it's very easy for me to make a little package and say losses stuff and therefore and blame it on the loss. No one can judge loss. That's right. It helps with the judgment. Yeah. And it also works for me to be in that. So I could be in less judgment. That's what I'm asking you. Right. So it's an excellent question. So it's not actually a, a question that's possible to answer. That's the truth. Because you don't know. Because it's not one loss. Like losing a child to mental illness, that's not, it's not like a car accident where everything's going fine and all of a sudden smack your kid was texting and driving or somebody else was texting or drinking and smacked into your kid and a shocking loss of a, of a very happening child. It was years of difficulty of raising a mentally ill child and dealing mm. with the schools and with therapists and psychiatrists and medications and and trips and other people and who can you expose him to or them to and how does that work years of that years of working on it years of partnership and working on it where I took more responsibility and it was harder for him me giving him the space to be a little bit in denial and me be more engaged because I could handle it and he couldn't or whatever just to have that partnership of we have a partnership in how we deal with this too mm. so you can't say it's saying if you never had children what if you never had children life is so different that's not even a question really because if you would have stayed in Israel and you never had children and then he decides like it's such a different reality that who can even say every single day builds you and I think that's an important thing when we give people the bracha to build a bayit ne'eman v'yisrael you should merit to build a faithful Jewish home among the Jewish people, but build, people don't focus on the word built, built every single day, yes. every single decision. Yes. And so we built our home every single day. Yes. Every single decision, every choice. And that's the home we're living in now. Beautiful. Who knows how we would have built it with different circumstances, mm -hmm. but it's built every single day with every single decision. Yeah. So it's building it. That's the thing. So we're yeah. still if somebody's living in a home they don't like, it, you built it. <laughs> So yeah. examine it and rebuild it. Yeah. And I think it's a good point that it's a story we tell ourselves or the concept of what, how can two people, one observant and not, and one not, one Shomer Shabbos, one not, one Taras Mishpacha, one not. How does it work? Our mind can't comprehend it until we normalize it. And how would we normalize it? By giving understanding to loss. But the truth is we all have losses in our dreams, in our aspirations, okay. what we thought life would be, our traumas, our history. So it doesn't have to be a tremendous loss. It could be a, a loss of a dream, a loss of expectation, a loss of ourselves. But it could also be a good loss. That's the point. There could be a gift inside the loss because in the loss, there's space for something new. There wasn't that space before the loss. A hundred percent. Maybe we can drop that analogy of, right. oh, he moved away from God because of losses. It's not only that, it could be a million other reasons. A million other things.
things. This is his right. story and this is his journey and this is your journey, but it doesn't have to be yes, only right. of the losses. Right. And we have to be very forgiving yeah. and understanding. I think the fact that you're a convert, you're so much kinder and open for differences, just like your parents were very happy when you went to Judaism. Okay, go enjoy, find your joy. If one of our kids will go to Buddhism, we're going to grieve. We'll literally sit shiva and we're going to say, what happened that we lost our kid to Buddhism? I don't know how I feel about that idea, but it's the way we're programmed and we have to remove ourselves from the programming of how it's supposed to be and face it and say, okay, who am I loving here? What do we want? Are we really showing up as honest, good humans? Can we serve each other with our differences? And can we do acceptance and find our own belonging? And I think this comes back to belonging. How can we give others belonging only when we feel belonging? And if you would be taking away from your husband's belonging when he doesn't feel belonging in the Orthodox world, you're robbing him from his belonging. Right. So the only way you can gift it to people you love is by feeling authentic with yourself and gifting it to others to feel authentic in their own belonging with no judgment, accepting them as is doesn't mean that we are okay with it, but it's accepting. Accepting is different than agreeing. Yeah, so that's really important to understand. We know the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because everything flows into it and nothing flows out. Right. But the Kinneret things flow through. And in right. Israel, we always worry about the height of the Kinneret. How's right. the Kinneret? The health of the Kinneret. Oh. We love the rain for the Kinneret. Right. We're constantly measuring the Kinneret. Every news is Gova Kinneret, right? So I think the trick here is to be a Kinneret and not a Dead Sea. Ooh, a it. lot of people could learn and try to improve themselves and, and self-care, but it's all about like self care mm -hmm. as opposed to being a key narrative. Yes, you need to fill up, but for the sake of flow out. Yes. Not for the sake of it's about me. Yeah. So to be a key narrative and not a Dead Sea, I think that's a vital aspect here. Beautiful. How do you find spiritual intimacy with your husband if you're on different spiritual frequency? There's such a big part of intimacy with spirituality. So sadly, that's not available in a relationship like this. I have to find spiritual intimacy with other people. So spiritual intimacy is still a quest, but it's not something I can find with my husband. So I'll, I may go to a level, share a thought, but he might be allergic to a Dvar Torah at the table. Sometimes right. I could share some, just an idea. And sometimes I see like the allergy is coming up and he's about to start pushing right. back. So then that's a back off and just realize, talk right. about that with somebody else. This is not your partner for that conversation. Right. That is part of the coping tools, which I discovered early in our marriage. Yeah. Um, you have to have different relationships. Your husband can't be everything. He's a lot, but he's not everything. So you need other friends for other aspects that your husband can't provide for you. And that's acceptance. Spiritual intimacy is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's acceptance of what I have and what I don't have. And maybe we can feel sorry for ourselves and say, you know what? I don't have this and this. I wish I did, but right. I don't. But the good outweighs what I don't have. Right. And, yeah, and you just have to find, okay, here's a need that I have that's unmet in this relationship. So you could sit around and have the need unmet or you could meet it. Make a friend. But there's the intimacy that you will never have with your husband on this. That intimacy. But there's other intimacies that you do. Right. How many people are religious, observant in the same way and don't have that spiritual intimacy right. because they don't have the depth. One is very practical and one is very spiritual. Right. They don't like analyzing and they're just like, okay, what time is mincha? That's it. That happens too. So we have to also take that into perspective. It's what we tell our mind that we don't have and how big of a loss is it. Regarding Tarata Mishpacha, so your husband is very respectful to you. That's one of his big things that he's respecting your ways, yeah, but yeah. it really can't work. Without respect, it can't work. But I'll just tell you one funny thing he said. For a long time, I wanted to write a book 
for Antara for reluctant husbands, because there's nothing out there for reluctant husbands. Look, there's mm. just not that chizik manual for them. But you know how they say, if you're apart for this time, if that first the Nikon night's like a wedding night, it's like so beautiful. And he's like, that's not how it is. This is what it's like. You're being hit on the head with a board for two weeks straight, and then it stops. He said that. He said that. Wow. And he said this from day one or only after he left, left religion? No, basically from early days, because it's hard, it's a hard mitzvah. It's a very hard mitzvah. For me, it's awful. I, there's a whole episode on my, how I never found beauty in the mikvah. I know you loved the mikvah when you went as a gioret. When I had my early ovarian failure, I believe God gave it to me early that I don't have to suffer another 20 years of going to the mikvah. It was hell for me every time. And when people said it was spiritual, it's for me every month hell. It's what we feel and the story we tell ourselves in it. And I love that he said that. We had our separate beds. We asked Shilas, we worked it out, but it was very respectful. And I think it does help that he was more religious at that time, but it was a challenge. We did actually go to a few different rabbinim for guidance and we were guided and it worked out and he was very respectful. Find your rabbi with all the differences and good rabbis, open-minded rabbis that know very well. I feel like the more they know halacha, the more you'll find that there's leniency and understanding and kindness. You have to figure out what's the halacha. I am not a um, Doctor Who nerd. Nevertheless, yeah. in the television series Doctor Who, there is a thing called the TARDIS. What does it stand for? Time and relative dimension in space, TARDIS. And it's a booth. And when you go into the, that's the like entryway into a whole different dimension. It's like a big spaceship that they have in Doctor Who. <clears throat> but it looks like from the outside, it looks just like a phone booth. And I feel like that's what the mikvah is. It is a TARDIS. It's this little tiny thing that you go into. And when you go into it, you're touching eternity. You're touching pre-creation. Because if you think about it, which day of the week was water created on? There's no day that it was created. It was created before the Torah starts. There was always mine. There was always mine. There was a separation of it, the organization of it. But the creation was before the Torah starts. So when you go into the mikvah, you're going into a TARDIS, a little booth, tiny little place that you go in. And when you go in, you're touching pre-creation. You go into a different dimension and you're able to (laughs) access that different dimension and leave your past behind and come out with an entire new future. I love that about the mikvah. Still not inspiring me, Aliza. I'm sorry. and I don't care about a TARDIS. I'm saying as someone that suffers with anxiety and OCD, I don't care if it was Kisei Hakavod coming and taking me into the mikvah. I just felt torture every single time. Like Donnie, think about Donnie and the torture that he went through, right. just surviving life like life was. It's torture sometimes. Yes, right. there's a spiritual yes. realm, but sometimes it's just torture and you have to figure out how you're going to do it. And we have to be very compassionate to, uh, to ourselves when it's supposed to be spiritual and we don't have that. Right. A hundred percent. Because it's another loss. Like not only am I doing this, that's so hard. I don't even feel inspired by this. It is another loss, right? It's really hard. So I feel like I so get your husband. I told you one day I'm going to interview him and he's going to give me chizak. What? Do you think about relationships that end and then there's the agunot that stay from somebody that really walks in leadership for women and protecting women to protect the world? Where do you think we went wrong with the whole story of agunot and that we're not protecting the woman? I I really think agunot are probably the most toxic or among the most toxic symptoms of the fraying of our social fabric. That our social fabric is weak right now, manifests in so many different ways. So A, it manifests in that a man would 
ever do that to a woman right. ever or that in the case because it always has been the case that there were men who did that to women so we had a backup plan and the backup plan was the community comes together and ostracizes him enough that he gives it to her but our social fabric is so weak right now that we don't have communities like that but why that's a whole different question for a whole nother podcast but the point is, our social fabric is very weak. It doesn't just manifest here. It manifests also in terms of intermarriage. A, people don't understand why not to. But B, we can't use ostracizing as a stick to prevent it. Because we can't today tell our kids, I'll cut you off. Right. Right. Nobody cares is a symptom of the weakness of our social fabric, even in the Orthodox world. Our social fabric is so weak that we don't have a threat left for I'll cut you off. It, it's not there. So it doesn't work for the man that's not giving the get and it doesn't work for a child that's considering intermarriage. We have a very weak social fabric and it doesn't work for keeping you in even if you have questions. Like I do want to create communities that are warm enough that even if you're not sure about Hashem, even if you're not sure he cares what you do, you'd never leave this community because it's so warm and loving and kind. Never leave it. And accepting of where you are at today. So it, so you'd never leave it because it's so worth it to be in it. That's what I want. I want to create communities like that. So we don't have that right now. And the whole Aguna problem is a symptom of that. Now, just halakhically, it has been addressed in the modern Orthodox world by halakhic prenups and the different language that's been used. Yeah, but that, that didn't even come into the Haredi world. The Haredi world has an opportunity to address it that they are not yet taking up. It's beginning to happen in the Haredi world, but I think we Haredi Jews can look at our more modern brethren and say, wow, how did you guys solve that problem? Oh, you figured out a language that works and then you universally enforce? No, they're never going to admit to that. They're not, but that's the opportunity. But why not? That's also a fraying of the social fabric. Having egos in leadership yeah. like that won't admit. These are all symptoms of our galut. That's what it is. Symptoms of our galus. Symptoms of our exile is all of this is just the fraying of the social fabric of the Jewish people and how it needs to be strengthened. So I'll bring that back to core because yeah. that's why I'm trying to strengthen the core of the Jewish people is for this, is that people should be menschlich in their marriages and menschlich in their divorces. Exactly. Or to your neighbor that acts differently or dresses differently. A hundred percent. We should be a mensch. There's so much menschlichkeit to grow through here. We could really be on a very different level if we actually kept the Torah and what the Torah has to say about treating people respectfully. So that's really important. And, I, and that's what I'm aiming for is to really try to bring that back to connect the Jews who are currently connected to Torah to actual Torah. Amen, amen. To not only be programmed living it, but to actually live the truth of it, which is kindness. Period. But Torah is compared to water. A, because we can't live without it, but B, because water has no shape. And it's only our midot, our derech eretz, our midot, our measurements, our character traits or our measurements that hold that Torah that makes it beautiful or not beautiful. We have to have good midot first mm -hmm. that create a shape that when Torah is poured into it, it's beautiful. That's the derech eretz, the, the behavior that precedes the ability to hold and to shine the Torah. So I really want to help strengthen the core of us so that we can hold 
a beautiful Torah because the Torah is gorgeous, but we have to pour it into beautiful vessels. And that's each one of us. We Each one can be beautiful. We just have to reconfigure some of our midot to um, make it so it's beautiful in every one of us. Bezrat Hashem. So I'm working on that. You knew Hashem was calling on you. And a part of me believes that you needed to work so much on that midah of acceptance in order to teach it that Hashem put it in your v'shachanti betocham. Like I'm going to come into their house and I need v'shachanti betocham within the differences and I'm going to show Aliza that it's possible and give her the strength so she can inspire others how non-traditional your life is. And it's so, scary in a way that what are the leaders of the Orthodox community going to say about it versus saying, no, this is my truth. This is my godliness. This is where I am. And Hashem really chose me. Bahar bi. Right. He did. No question about it. So special. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for inspiring me. I gained a friend, but I really gained a mentor. And I always say to my husband, Aliza is where I want to be with acceptance of others. And there's a tug of war inside me because I didn't accept myself yet. And right. it's very hard to accept others if we don't accept ourselves. True. But start with your husband too. You can work on him. He'll help. It's every day. Good. That's true. It's yeah. Love him. It'll help you loving you. And yeah. And the more yeah. he loves you, the more you'll love you too. Look, there's this, there is a feedback loop in your marriage that you can set into motion. So you can work on yourself, but work on him too. Like work on loving him for who he is. Mama. That will help you love you for who you are. Mama. Yes. Amen. Amen. I'm really working on that. Aliza, thank you so much for your time. Unbelievable time. And if people want to join court, is there a waiting list? Did anybody join? How does it work? Anybody who's serving the community in a professional capacity could join one of the communities of practice for people who are serving the community. And we have that on our website under communities of practice. So you can go and look and see if there's a community that's appropriate for you and just sign up and you'll be able to join. Anybody who wants to create a core circle, we have assistance for that. And we have a community practice for core circle leaders. Like how do you create this group of a micro community of five to 10 women who get together on a regular basis to deepen their relationships with each other. We'll support you in that. And there is a waiting list for the two and a half year mentor training program, counselor training program, but we're going to be putting out a call for applications pretty soon. And we will start a second cohort in the fall as Rad Hashem. So anybody who's interested in that should be paying attention, but shortly we will be putting out a call. I think we'll probably be accepting a class of 25. Anybody who wants to support that financially or yes. be part of that in any other way, please contact me. We are looking for all kinds of people that want to be part of this in many different ways. Thank you for your time and and everything that you do. Thank you to you too. Thank you okay. so much. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So so don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.